Hello, it's Tuesday, May the 9th, and welcome to Area 45, Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, Russell Berman, a Hoover Senior Fellow, the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University, and co-chair of Hoover's Working Group on Islamism and the International Order. He's a specialist in the study of German literary and cultural politics, and that's our topic today, the French election. Après le déluge, another European nation skirting another nationalist déluge, what's next for Germany and the European Union? Russell, thanks for coming into studio today. Great to see you. Happy to be here. All right, this weekend, we all know the news by now. Um, Emmanuel Macron will soon be the next president of France. This weekend, we will see government transition in Paris. Um, Monsieur Macron will go to the LSA. He'll be received in the courtyard by Francois Hollande. After a brief chat, Hollande will leave the presidential palace accompanied by the Republican Guard. Then Macron has to get to the business of how to actually run France, and it will not be easy. After he does a ceremonial paying tribute to the tomb of the unknown warrior at the Arc de Triomphe and Pézégne City Hall, he then has to figure Russell how to actually set up a government. And here he has a problem. He's never run the government before. So executive uh, leadership is new to him. He's promised to field candidates, half of them women, half from civil society or local councils, 577 parliamentary seats. He's promised to reduce government of 15 ministers, commando, 15 ministers as he calls them. He's promised to recruit from the left, the center, and the right because he is not a party unto himself. He's something not entirely new. Russell, how does he do this? It's going to be tough. He has a week of transition before he becomes president. The key issue is that in June there'll be the the legislative uh, elections for the assembly, and that's where we'll see what the real pulse of French politics is. Uh, Macron sort of has a party now en marche, forward march, mm -hmm. uh, but this is brand new. He just made it up on the fly. He uh, is coming from outside of the spectrum of traditional political parties, and that's a theme really across the West at, at right. this point. Uh, is he going to govern to the right? Is he going to govern to the left? We don't know. Um, an initial sign will be his uh, nomination of a, of a prime minister. But really what's at stake will be these June elections. In the presidential election, um, Marie Le Pen, the, um, the, the, uh, the populist whose uh, loss is being celebrated across, uh, across Europe, uh, won a third of the votes. The National Front, her party, currently has two seats in the National Assembly of some 600. Mm -hmm. uh, what will it look like after June? Uh, there are some quirks to the French election counting system. Um, in the last uh, assembly, uh, regional elections, uh, she won some 25%, but that was not really reflected then in the seats occupied. So it's a crapshoot, as we say, in the science of politics. Uh, I keep hearing, uh, reading stories of Macron described as the JFK of France. Uh, in American politics, there are three JFKs. There is John Fitzgerald Kennedy, there is Jack French Kemp, and there is John Forbes Carey. <laughs> which, which JFK are you leading to right now? Oh, well, let's go beyond the game show here. <laughs> uh, what's fascinating is that Macron has not run for election and he's not really served uh, significantly. He was the um, uh, economic minister. Uh, for Hollande, right. but Hollande picked him from the private sector. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, he has a history as a, uh, as a banker uh, in the world of high finance. Uh, this is not going to endear him to the left, uh, even though in this election he was, in a sense, the center-left candidate running against the right populist, uh, uh, Le Pen. Uh, he, the issue, I think, is less his lack of personal experience, although that will certainly harm him as well, mm -hmm. uh, but the um, ambivalence of his politics and the um, uh, Gordian knot that uh, he has to try to figure out how to solve. Uh, France has 20% un um, youth unemployment. 10% uh, general unemployment, uh, extraordinary dis, uh, disaffection, uh, very strong statist inclinations in the public across the spectrum, um, but that same statism is what's clogged up its economy and prohibited uh, innovation, and that generates this, uh, uh, this unemployment. And I haven't even got to the question of immigration, right. Islamism, right. and terror. Mm -hmm. Right. So you saw the, first of all, were you surprised by the results on Sunday? It was, what, about a 30-point margin of victory, I believe? You know, uh, no, I wasn't surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's put this in some perspective. Uh, uh, a lot of the discussion about European politics, scratch that. A lot of discussion about politics is refracted through a hysterical and sensationalist press. Uh, people were afraid that Le Pen would win, maybe because of the uh, surprise of Brexit and the surprise of Trump. Right. But there was never any indication that she was likely to win. There was always uh, a sense that uh, in the second round of uh, voting, which is the French pattern, uh, she could not get to a majority. There was no, in that sense, analogous to Wilders in, uh, in the Netherlands. There was no real sense that he could get a majority. Now, the... Um, uh, what Le Pen did, however, was get uh, 30, some 33% of the vote. The last time the National Front made it to the second round was in 2002, when Marie's father, um, Jean-Marie, right. uh, ran against Jacques Chirac. At that point, uh, he got 17%. National Front got 17%. So what she's been able to do is double the percentage of, uh, the, um, of, the, of the National Front vote. This is really remarkable. Uh, the, uh, for decades, the National Front was 10%, 12% of France. Now it's at a third. Uh, the National Front is um, uh, burdened with... Uh, many positions that people would regard as extreme. She's been able to move the party away from the anti-Semitism of her father. Nonetheless, she's, she was calling for a return to the franc, for giving up the euro. She was calling for uh, leaving the, the EU. Um, and the National Front is, uh, one way or another, burdened with the, uh, the past of Vichy. Uh, if we phrased it that way, a third of the French voters were, were voting for Pétain, were voting for voting Vichy. Right. This is, this is, wow, this is, and this uh, in the country of the French Revolution. I just overstated the issue. Right. Uh, a lot of this is protest vote. A lot of this is unemployment vote. Uh, a lot of this uh, is collapse of traditional parties. Look at this French election. You had uh, Macron coming from no party and the National Front uh, winning a third, a party, but certainly a bizarre one. 
uh, I mentioned before, this theme of um, voters uh, rejecting traditional parties. One could compare this to the uh, uh, recent presidential election in Austria. Uh, in Austria, since the world since World War II, politics have been dominated by the socialists and the conservatives. Neither of them made it into the presidential election. Instead, you had a green candidate, a green candidate, uh, and a party of the um, the far right liberal party, uh, uh, a candidate of the far right liberal party. So um, uh, the press is spinning this as landslide defeat for uh, Marie Le Pen. On, on the contrary, you have a third of the French voters prepared to swallow everything that is associated with the National Front uh, in order to vote against the establishment. Interesting. So I had two of your colleagues, David Brady and Doug Rivers, on this podcast a few days ago, and I used a rather strained analogy to talk about the nationalist movement in Europe. And the analogy I used was Gertrude Ederle, the first woman to swim across the English Channel. Now, she did it going from France to Britain. But the question is, Russell, in terms of the nationalist movement, we had Brexit. Brexit passes, but then the question is, does this sentiment actually make it to the continent? Does the English Channel metaphor, does it land on the continent, and does it take off, as it did in Britain? And as we've seen in Holland, as we've seen in France, and as we may see in Germany, it's not quite the same, is it? It's, it's not quite the same, although I suppose one might argue that uh, the inclination toward a national liberalism in the classical sense uh, is greater in the Anglosphere than in the uh, Roman law continent. Mm -hmm. I suppose one could make a deep argument about that. Uh, it, it hasn't won a majority on the continent yet, um, at least not in Western Europe. Uh, the, um, uh, but it, um, it, it has uh, gained significant victories. Uh, uh, Le Pen has doubled the fraction from her father. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, Wilders lost, but he shrank the distance between him and the majority part and the and the and the uh, largest vote getter by by half. It's, that, it, that election has gone rather unnoticed, it seems, compared to the attention to Brexit and, and now the French election. Is that is that just a function of the size of Holland, or? Well, it's a function of the size of Holland, and there's some quirks of the the, the Dutch system. Uh, they don't have the five percent hurdle that prevails in Germany, so they have mm -hmm. a very very large uh, array of of, uh, of parties. It's hard to build coalition, but. You had you had uh, Wilders who surely gives Le Pen a run for her money in terms of extremism on on immigration issues, uh, running against the liberal Rotter. Uh, the uh, the spread in two thousand and twelve was uh, was was um, was sixteen percent, and now it's been reduced to eight percent. Mm -hmm. Again, our our objective press presents this as a a, a landslide defeat for Wilders. Wilders is himself uh, a remarkable figure. His party consists of one member, Geert Wilders. So it's a, it's an anti-party. What we're seeing uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is a vote against parties. Really, um, uh, will. You asked me whether um, whether the uh, 
the, the, the anti-EU sentiment has made it across the continent, uh, across the channel. Right. I, I ask in the regard, if you look at Brexit, Brexit seemed to be Russell came down to two components. Number one, obviously, the British identity. That <laughs> we are, by God, we are the British people. But then secondly, we do not like being part of the EU. So very, very simple marketing, very simple referendum in that regard. And to me, a little less choppy than, than the votes on the continent, which get tied into other issues such as, in France, cultural drift and so forth. Right. But in the end, a third of the French voted against, against the EU and against, right. and against the euro. Uh, uh, significant voters in – significant numbers of voters did so in the Netherlands as well. You're not going to get that in Germany. Uh, that's because Germany is uh, is different. Uh, uh, Germany is the country most burdened by the past of the Second World War. Uh, German identity, German politics have been have been driven since 1945 by an effort to become European, in a sense, to cease to be German and to become European. That's why, until this last round, uh, the notion of a significant vote-getting party to the right of the Christian Democrats was unthinkable. Right. Uh, it's not unthinkable in France. Uh, uh, in France, the National Front always got 12 percent, 14 percent. This was not the case in Germany. The, the far-right parties would get 4 percent, 5 percent in some mm -hmm. regional elections, a little bit more. Now we have the alternative for Germany, which was scoring 15 percent, 20 percent in regional elections. I do not expect the AFD to do that in a national election. Uh, because of the hesitation about by most Germans uh, living in the shadow of the Hitler catastrophe, uh, also the Bavarian wing of the of the Conservative Party, the Christian Socialists, is somewhat further to right and 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 soaks up some of that that right potential. Also, Merkel is just a uh, extraordinarily consummate politician. All right. Well, thank you for bringing up Germany because that's what I wanted to get into with you, get, get into your wheelhouse. There was another election on Sunday in Europe besides the one of France, and that was one held in Germany, in the northern part of Germany, Schleswig-Holstein. Um, I believe that's the dairy lands, which are up toward the Danish border, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. uh, not a very populous area. But two million voters. Two million voters, but still significant in this regard. Angela Merkel's conservatives defeated their social democratic rivals. The numbers which I saw, Russell, Christian Democrats earned 33% of the vote, which was an improvement from 30.8% in 2012. The SPD, the social democrats, fell from 30.4% to 26.4%. There is another vote in Germany this upcoming Sunday. It's in the country's most populous state, North Rhine-Westphalia, with about 13 million voters. But at this moment, Russell, would you say that reports of Angela Merkel's death are greatly exaggerated? Yes, I would, uh, even though I spread some of those rumors uh, uh, recently. Uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's take that for a second. Why, why did you say that? Why, what led you to believe that she was in trouble? There were several – well, let me, let me put some context around this. Uh, the, the big story is September 24th, when the uh, federal elections will take place right. in Germany, where Angela Merkel, in a sense, is up for re-election. Uh, German politics are such that uh, there are always regional elections going on in the various states, the Länder. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they don't happen all at the same date. Uh, we just had the election in Schleswig-Holstein. Uh, last year, there were elections in some, um, some, some, uh, some other states, including in Berlin, which has the status of, of, um, uh, of an individual state. And the big story in all of those 
uh, elections was the rise of the AFD. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the SPD was losing, the uh, CDU was losing, uh, and it seemed that the AFD was drawing disaffected voters, uh, not only from the conservatives, also from the socialists, but disproportionately from the conservatives. AFD stands for? The, the Alternative for Germany. This is the far-right party. Mm -hmm. And extrapolating forward, the calculation was what might happen is not that the far-right would win, but that the far-right would draw enough voters away from the center-right, from Angela Merkel, to undermine her party's supremacy and thereby enable a left coalition to come into power in Berlin. A left coalition uh, without the CDU or perhaps a great coalition led by the socialists and the CDU and junior, neither of these would be good for transatlantic relations. Um, the election in Schleswig-Holstein was a slight victory for the conservatives and a significant loss for the socialists. Mm -hmm. uh, this means that the talk about Martin Schulz, the socialist uh, uh, candidate for, for chancellor, um, cruising into uh, the chancellery in September, this is overstated. Uh, Merkel has maintained aplomb. Um, Merkel, in the wake of Brexit, in a sense, can represent stability to Germans. Uh, Germans like stability. Uh, uh, sometimes that's bad. In this case, it's maybe good. Uh, and um, uh, she is, uh, her, her throne isn't, isn't being toppled yet. But the next big, the next uh, state election is on May 14th in the state of Nordrhein-Westphalia. Right. This is the most populous state. Uh, the uh, state election there is sometimes called the, the small Bundestag uh, uh, election. Um, that's May 14th, and we'll see what happens there. It has had a significant socialist majority, uh, uh, so socialist plurality in the past, uh, and it's led by a popular uh, socialist governor. Uh, but we will see. The socialists are weaker than presumed, and that's, that's another European pattern. Uh, one takeaway from the Dutch election was the near disappearance of the Labour Party, of the Workers' Party, the Socialist Party. Uh, 2012, 24% of the vote. 2017, 5% of the vote. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, analogous to what may be happening with Labour in the UK. Uh, just a poof, and it's gone. Uh, again, slight overstatement, but it's uh, it's likely to lose significantly in these upcoming elections. Uh, therefore, if the socialists similarly lose in Germany, that's going to strengthen Merkel's hand. You mentioned Martin Schulz in passing. Uh, tell tell us our listeners a little bit more about who Martin Schulz is, what he represents as a candidate. Uh, well, Martin Schulz is a social democrat, uh, comes from the far west of Germany, uh, actually began his career with a bookstore. Uh, he made his way up the party hierarchy, and then he was a major figure in, uh, the, in the European Union. Uh, that, that is one career path for German politicians. Some through, go through Berlin and some through, go through Brussels. He is, 
He is he is indisputably identified with the European project. Okay. Uh, and he was selected to become the um, chancellor candidate of the uh, SPD. So he will lead, he will head the list uh, of the uh, socialists when they go into the election in September. Uh, he was initially celebrated by our discerning press as a charismatic, as a compelling candidate. Uh, yeah, now you know not so much uh, and. Uh, there is, uh, there's Euroscepticism in Germany too. It's not going to lead to um, Le Penian calls to leave the, the EU, but there are, there are uh, significant sentiments in Germany of um, anxiety about the so-called democracy deficit, about the shift of power to, um, to, to Brussels. Uh, above all though, by anxieties about the threat of what's called a transfer union, where basically more money goes from North European taxpayers' pockets into the, um, the, uh, the bottomless pits of the uh, Southern European uh, budget deficits. Right. Uh, now, this brings me back to France. Mm. Uh, uh, this brings me back to France because now we have um, uh, someone becoming president who, in a strange way, may even be worse for Merkel than Le Pen would have been. Uh, worse in the sense that Macron is very likely to advocate the Southern European position on the um, on the character of on the future character of the EU. Think of this as a modified version of Greece, if you remember the Euro crisis. Right. Uh, there's going to be a call for funds transfer from the north to the south, where France counts as the south. Uh, uh, in that case, uh, Merkel is going to be even more regretful about the departure of the Brits, because the Brits represented a Sort of North European vote uh, in the um, in the um, uh, complicated councils of the of the European Union. Uh, without that British vote, the center of gravity is shifting south. Center of gravity is shifting toward more dirigistic positions, more redistribution. You know what I mean. More redistribution uh, <laughs> and. Um, uh, and that's not going to go well with the German public. Not even the socialists in Germany are f in favor of the Southern European position in the EU. Right. So Angela Merkel is seeking a fourth term as mm -hmm. German chancellor. So she's not running on novelty. No. She's not running on change. She's not running on transformative politics. She is running on familiarity, continuity. Correct me. Stop me anytime I'm wrong here. Trust. Mm -hmm. uh, Muter, mother to us all. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, you can trust her with the job, which means she has to defend her record. And one thing we haven't talked about in this podcast so far is the refugee situation in Germany, the immigration factor in the French election. You write for the German media, so I assume you're familiar with what's reported in Germany, what German people talk about. Talk a bit about how the refugee situation plays into this upcoming election. You know, the history of the history of past couple of years with regard to refugees in Germany has been enormously interesting. Um, the, um, it's primarily about the Syrian crisis, uh, although the refugee influx is more heterogeneous than that. Mm -hmm. uh, one, let's, let's leave for another discussion. Um, um, 
why the West failed to present alternatives to those uh, beleaguered people from Syria and why they ended up coming to Europe. Right. Uh, but they did come to Europe uh, in, uh, in, in extraordinary numbers. Uh, and uh, Europe and, and countries are obligated by convention to help people in duress, uh, refugees. Uh, you can test whether they really are in duress. Uh, ethically, I think there's nothing wrong with this. If people are facing mortal danger, one gives them a helping hand. Uh, there was a convention in Europe that, the, that a potential refugee should apply for that in the first EU country where they land, uh, the so-called Dublin Convention. Mm -hmm. Uh, that would have meant that they would have all been applying for refugee status in Greece or in, in Italy. Clearly an unsolvable problem. They, they, those countries just can't handle it. What Merkel did single-handedly was to say, come to Germany. Uh, uh, maybe that was the pragmatic solution for the refugee crisis, but it overrode all sorts of EU rules. And that kind of German imperiousness does not wear well in Poland or France. Right. Uh, a million refugees show up in, uh, in Germany, and uh, they're welcomed largely by the population. This is not about uh, uh, right-wing thugs trying to burn down uh, refugee homes, as has happened in the not-so-distant past in Germany, but the Willkommenskultur developed. Germans came out, and they were showering the refugees, greeting them. Um, uh, and this was regarded as, and I think is legitimately regarded as, an effort by Germans to show that they too can be good people uh, against the background of the Nazi past, you know, bad press, right? Right. Uh, but also to some extent against the background of the Greek crisis. Uh, I think that may be part of Merkel's motivation for being so, uh, so, um, so generous. Very quickly, though, uh, uh, ideals uh, faced reality and uh, became a resource allocation issue. Uh, 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 um, crime ensued. There was the uh, notorious, um, what was it, 2016 uh, uh, New Year's Eve in Cologne where bands of uh, refugee uh, North African immigrants attacked right. women at the, uh, the New Year's Eve celebration. Uh, uh, and uh, then the, um, the terror attack in Berlin, uh, where a refugee ran his, um, his, uh, his truck into uh, the Christmas market. Uh, I, was, I was in that market a week before it happened. <laughs> uh, I, was traveling, I was traveling with my sister, Russell, who was very concerned about terrorism, and I kept assuring her, you just can't be worried about these things. They're random. Let's just enjoy ourselves. And sure enough, a week later, there was the news showing the truck going into that, that center that we were in. I mean, one way that these are clearly not random is the selection of targets. So a right. Christmas market in Germany, Bastille Day in France, and right outside of uh, Parliament in London. These right. aren't randomly selected. These right. are highly symbolic uh, signals of a hostility to a way of life. Uh, uh, in any case, uh, the um, uh, enthusiasm for refugees uh, waned very quickly in, in, in Germany. Uh, part of it uh, fed into the extreme right wing, the AFD. Uh, part of it uh, found expression in the CSU, the right wing of the um, of the conservative uh, conservative uh, coalition party. Uh, but across the spectrum, people realized that this is just unsustainable. Now, 
again, in our press, our own press that I hold in so such great esteem, there's a um, uh, a, a meme that contrasts enlightened Europe with uh, with uh, troglodytes in Washington, right. uh, particularly on the immigration issue. How could one be so silly as to want to build a wall? Well, Merkel, in effect, has tried to build a wall, and the name of that wall is Erdogan. Uh, she's made a she's cut a deal with the uh, authoritarian leader of Turkey to uh, prevent refugees from crossing from Turkey into Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that um, this is Germany. I'll say uh, Faustian pact with with Erdogan is uh, uh, costs a lot, and it uh, puts this defender of. Um, Western values, Angela Merkel, who of course lectured uh, Donald Trump on those Western values when he was uh, elected, puts her in alliance with uh, a very problematic figure in Turkey. But Germany's building a wall just like the United States is building a wall. It's just doing it, it politically as opposed to architecturally. I just heard the name Donald Trump. Uh, Barack Obama popped up in the French election. Obama endorsed Macron. Macron uh, did a uh, press event one day where he was on the telephone uh, with Obama, taking advice from Obama. Uh, I didn't hear or see much about Donald Trump being involved in the election. And I'm curious, Russell, as to Donald Trump's role in the German election. If you're Angela Merkel, for example, and Donald Trump calls you and says, I would like to come visit Germany, pay a state visit to you, appear with you, what does she do? Um, she doesn't take the call. <laughs> um, you know, um, but how tr how does Trump factor into German politics? It's uh, it, there's there, listen. There's there's hostility toward Trump. I think um, across across all of the reasonable spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, uh, by that I exclude the AFD. There there may well be some Trump enthusiasm there, but the AFD is going through its own meltdown right now. For that's another story. Um, uh, the germ a big piece of the German spectrum is like the um, the, the Democratic Party liberal spectrum in in the United States. Uh, also, not particularly friendly toward toward Donald Trump. Uh, the um, beyond that, uh, there is a kind of uh, uh, anti-Americanism that operates in. Um, uh, in in German political culture, uh, even in the center right, uh, uh, the uh, center right, uh, which is of course Atlanticist, right? That's it's not like Le Pen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Atlanticist. Nonetheless, can look at um, American culture, American politics, and see it as too um, uh, well. Now I suppose we'd say Jacksonian. Uh, uh, as as uh, too much rabble, too not not high enough, not um, not professional enough. Uh, Germany is the country I think the one country where professional politics and politicians are still thriving, whereas elsewhere uh, poli uh, political parties are 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 in decay. Uh, Trump seems like the epitome of the. Um, the raucous American, as opposed to the well-behaved European. Right. Uh, now, when Merkel visited Trump uh, in Washington, she did a uh, she did a great job. I mean, she's a consummate politician. What she was able to do was avoid an eclat, was uh, avoid a rupture. 
Germans don't want to have a rupture with the United States. Uh, but she also clearly kept her distance from persona non grata, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, if she had uh, embraced him, if she had, uh, if there'd been a, a picture of the two of them smiling and shaking hands, that would have lost her the election. Now, is that any different from the European view of first-term Ronald Reagan? I remember traveling through Europe uh, after I left college in the early 80s, and you'd walk around large cities in Europe, and you'd see bookstores that'd be posters, posters of Ronald Reagan invariably wearing a cowboy costume. Or I remember going by a bookstore in London, and there was a, a mock poster of Ronald Reagan as Rep Butler holding up Margaret Thatcher as uh, Scarlett O'Hara. There was a view of Ronald Reagan as a, as a cowboy, i.e. just kind of reckless, gun-slinging American. Uh, do they view Trump in the so is is this really kind of a continuation of that view? The, it's, sort of, yeah. the day class A American. It, the, the day class A American. I think there are a lot of sources for European anti-Americanism. One of them, one of their, uh, one of them is this uh, uh, contrast between elite, polite, uh, professional Europeans and. Uh, uncouth Americans. Uh, I've written on this for, uh, for, for Hoover Press. On, uh, there are other dimensions to, um, to anti-Americanism in Europe as well. But in any case, this is playing into the, uh, into, the, into the German election. All right. So if you're Angela Merkel and Donald Trump wants to come see you, great idea. Come see me maybe after Oktoberfest. That's right. <laughs> Not in September. All right, Russell, let's close this out by let's have you put on your investor hat for me. And I want you to give me some stock predictions of, of things going on in Europe right now. Emmanuel Macron, buy, sell, or hold? I'd, um, I'd sell. You'd uh, sell. Why would you sell? Uh, he's, um, he's caught in a bind uh, with regard to um, how to, um, how to, how to, how to present the, the EU from a Southern European position to tight-fisted Berliners uh, who, who want the Northern European position. If he moves the needle toward the north, he's going to face big strikes uh, from the left in um, uh, uh, this summer or certainly this fall. All right. Um, Angela Merkel, buy, sell, or hold? Uh, I'd, I'd give it a tentative, um, tentative, I'd give it a hold right now and I'd wait, to, wait a week till May 14th to the uh, Nordrhein-Westphalia elections. And after that, if she does well, she doesn't have to win him. She just has to uh, reduce the social democratic lead from the previous election. Then I would definitely buy and buy a lot. Which is a shift from your previous sell, right? That's right. Okay. Martin Schultz. Sell. Sell. Loser. <laughs> Loser. The EU. Uh, the EU, I'd hold. Uh, it's uh, uh, even. Yeah, it's it's gonna. It's 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 half life isn't over yet. Uh, it's going to have to try to reform. Uh, it's not a case of um, the EU at its most bureaucratic or nothing. There could be a kind of internal reform, a debureaucratization, a uh, shift toward um, uh, devolution of powers, uh, a um, uh, reduction in the arrogation of power to the to, to the center. But listen, you know, uh, Macron could screw this up. Uh, if Macron goes in with an emphatic South European centralizing position on the EU. One thing he could do to uh, curry favor with Merkel 
would be to take an emphatic pro-immigration position, not just verbal pro-immigration. He has said that those countries, he means in Central East Europe, uh, who are not accepting refugees are going to have to be fined because they're in uh, violation of, of EU policy. This is reminiscent of uh, Jacques Chirac so many years ago, who, uh, in response to the um, uh, Czech criticism of the German-French hostility to the United States, said that the Czechs had missed an opportunity to shut up. This is the EU core, France and Germany, telling the margins to go away to just get in line and follow orders. Uh, if Macron does that, he could provoke a crisis with the, um, with the center East Europeans. All right. Uh, buy, sell, or hold, nationalism, populism, Trumpism, whatever ism you want to call it. I'd hold. I'd hold. Uh, it hasn't gone away. It's uh, scored a, a significant electoral, um, um, electoral increases. Um, it's a reaction to globalization. Globalization isn't, uh, isn't going to disappear naturally. Um, the, um, within Europe, unless there's a reform of the EU, there will remain um, Euroskeptical activism, which is, what feeds the, um, which is what feeds this nationalism. And then finally, Donald Trump and the idea of Trump being able to at least access Fortress Europe and finding, if not friends, partners to work with? Buy, sell, or hold? Buy. 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 Yeah. Yeah, buy. You're, you're an optimist, right? I, how, do, I, how does Trump do it? Uh, I think he may cut, be able to cut a deal on um, trade with uh, the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. That would be significant. Uh, there'd be room to pick off various of the North Europeans, or which at least will provoke tension between them and the, um, the rest of the EU. Um, you know, the, in, in Europe, as in the United States, um, we not only had a, it, it was worse than the denunciation of, uh, of, um, of Reagan as cowboy. Uh, it's been um, Trump as Hitler. Right. Uh, now, uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, I've written about this in the German press. Congress hasn't been burnt down. Uh, we aren't burning books in the uh, city squares, uh, except, of course, if you're at Berkeley. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and the rule of law is respected. Well, uh, he's, he's, he's learning how to play the game. Uh, I, have, um, I think it's worth taking the risk that this is a man who knows how to make deals. All right. So you're, you're a buy opportunity on Trump. Yes. Okay. Russell Berman, thanks for coming to the studio today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think this is fascinating. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Yes, please subscribe to us and tell your friends about us. We want to grow our listenership. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Russell Berman, straight to your inbox every business day. You can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover I-N-S-T. That's at Hoover Inst. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Look for it in a couple days. It's on cybersecurity. It's a great topic. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.